Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. This is Tom Salemi. Today, we'll talk a bit about glaucoma. We'll be visiting with Rush Chenery, CEO of InFocus, a startup that's developed a micro-shunt that relieves intraocular pressure brought on by glaucoma. InFocus clearly is playing in a crowded field of device companies that are trying to develop first-line treatments for glaucoma, including, of course, the industry-leading Glaucos. But Chenery says he's grateful for the competition because it's proving every single day that there's demand for glaucoma devices. InFocus has raised $30 million to date and hopes to raise a Series C round this year to fund its PMA trials. Let's listen to Russ Trenary's visit to the OIS podcast. Russ, thanks for joining us on the podcast. I appreciate it, Tom. Glad to be here. Let's talk a bit about uh, InFocus, obviously. That's why you're here. Uh, your microshunt's been uh, used in over 100 patients. You, you presented some great data at OIS in the fall. Uh, you reported some good long-term data. So things uh, seem to be going well. Give us a little bit uh, of background on, on the micro-shunt, and then uh, let's talk a bit about where you are uh, regulatory-wise. Sure. Well, it's a, you know, this is a really interesting device made out of a revolutionary material. Um, I think the thing that has really differentiated us so far is, um, as far as we can tell, uh, we're the only device that's been able to produce post-operative IOPs below 14 millimeters of mercury out to three years. Um, and and that's you know the, these are patients that started out on full medication, so these were not necessarily the easiest patients to treat. And I think the I think the reason for that success is several fold. We've got a material that's unbelievable. It's it's a it's called styrene block isobutylene block styrene, um, SIBS for short. And our company founder invented this material um, many many years ago, originally as a coating for the Taxus stent which um, was the largest medical device launch in the history of medical devices of the product uh, that was launched by Boston Scientific, gosh, you know, more than 10 years ago. Um, and I think the, one of the key success factors for that, for that product was this SIBS material caused the stent to remain patent, to remain open, um, and that was a key differentiating factor for that technology, and I think it's a key differentiating factor for our technology as well. What's the significance of the 14 number? Is it just that it's that's the lowest available? Is that the lowest available, or, or is there some clinical significance to that number? It's a great question, Tom, and, and actually the, the clinical significance um, from that has been learned from the Aegis study, and uh, the, the doctors who performed that study and then analyzed that data um, we're able to chart out um, how much visual field loss a patient would experience at a variety of different intraocular pressures. These, of course, are all glaucomatous eyes. And what they determined was that um, for those patients with glaucoma, on average, if you could get them to below 14 millimeters of mercury, that is the point at which the patient would no longer experience any further degradation of vision. Hmm. So you maintain that number and you and you maintain their vision. Correct. So where do you stand now with the FDA? Are you working with them? You're in phase one trials here in the U.S. Uh, what is your your regulatory path that you're pursuing, and and what sort of timeline are you looking at? 
So in the United States, um, we've got a full-blown IDE. It's a randomized trial against trabeculectomy. It's the only randomized trial against trabeculectomy. Um, and I think it's partially because in order to, um, to show uh, efficacy, at least, that's similar to trabeculectomy, you have to be able to produce a result that's below 14 millimeters of mercury. That's typically what the doctors are aiming for with their, with their trabs. So in this trial, we expect uh, at the end to have well over 500 patients uh, randomized against trabeculectomy, probably um, in excess of 300 implants uh, of the in-focus microshunt, and that will be in comparison to a couple of hundred uh, trabeculectomies. Um, we're in the first phase of that trial right now. It's a, it's a phase that uh, encompasses 75 patients. We expect to be through those 75 patients within the next couple of months and then uh, hope to have clearance from FDA uh, to move into the final phase uh, sometime this year. Describe the difference between the two procedures, someone undergoing trebulectomy versus, what, versus the insertion of the microshunt. Well, the, the insertion of the in-focus microshunt is a pretty straightforward, pretty gosh darn intuitive, um, and compared to trabeculectomy, easy procedure for the, for the doctor to perform. Basically, what they do is they do a, uh, at least during the clinical trial, because as you know, we kind of freeze time and we freeze progress um, um, during the trial. Um, during the trial, there's a dissection of the conjunctiva. The doctor then puts a couple of MMC, uh, mitomycin C-soaked sponges underneath the conge for a couple of minutes. He then removes those sponges and makes a needle track into the anterior chamber and then places the uh, proximal end of the in-focus micro shunt into the anterior chamber, tucks the distal end of the shunt underneath tenon's membrane, and then closes up the conjunctiva. The trabeculectomy, on the other hand, is... Um, a longer procedure, a more difficult procedure. It includes the, uh, the creation and fashioning of a scleral flap. Um, and so you've got to do all the things you have to do with the in-focus microshunt, plus create a scleral flap, plus make a free-handed entry into the anterior chamber, plus um, suture down that, that, um, that scleral flap, after having removed some tissue um, in order to, to create a, a channel, if you will, that flows enough aqueous out of the anterior chamber without flowing too much out of the anterior chamber. And then on a post-operative basis, the doctor is monkeying around with um, tightening or loosening sutures when they sutured down the, the scleral flap. And this is kind of the area where there's a lot of post-op care, a lot of um, uh, concern on the doctor's part that the pressure might drop too much. And so um, there's a lot of, uh, the doctors will, will tell me, after my trabeculectomies, I worry a lot more about what the patient's going to be like on the first day post-op. With your procedure, no concern. They, they end up with pretty much a, you know, a very similar result on post-op day one and week one, um, no matter who the patient is. Any challenges in, in recruiting patients to either group, either one wants to have one procedure or the other? You know, it's actually a larger challenge um, to, to recruit for the uh, in-focus microshunt for the study itself because, as you can imagine, if a, if a patient walks into a doctor's office and they need a trabeculectomy, the doctor doesn't have to ask anybody whether they need one. They do the diagnosis. 
they've likely been treating the patient for many years, um, that those patients having failed, you know, one or more eye drops and having failed one or more laser procedures, finally they need a trabeculectomy. The doctor just tells the patient it's time. They set up a scheduled date and, and take them into the operating room. In an FDA clinical trial, there are a lot of inclusion-exclusion criteria in particular that the FDA looks at, not only for the eye that's going to be operated upon, but also for the fellow eye, because, of course, their concern is, is to have a study that has the utmost of safety associated with it, and technically, we have an unproven device, even though we've had a lot of success outside of the United States, but from an FDA standpoint, it's unproven. So there are a lot of patients that a doctor wants to use the implant on, but can't get them into the trial because they don't meet the inclusion-exclusion criteria, and so they end up just having to do a trabeculectomy and never enter the patient into the study. Hmm. Is the in intention, if you were to get, uh, get approval, would, would every patient who is eligible for a trabeculectomy also be eligible for a microstunt, or is it a subset of the, of the larger surgical population? It's largely that group. If you, if you talk to our doctors outside of the United States who are involved in, in the trials that we have over there that do not have the, the same degree of inclusion-exclusion criteria that our FDA trial has, what they will tell you is increasingly whenever a patient comes into their office, if they need a trabeculectomy, they're just going to do an in-focus microshunt instead. They feel like they get a safer, more reliable, just as efficacious result. Um, the only time you might um, choose a trap, well, I guess there are a variety of times, but, but it's a pretty low incidence occurrence. And if there's been a, um, if there's been a failed trabeculectomy previously, some doctors might try another one or perhaps go to a tube shunt. We have not tested our, our uh, device against uh, patients that have failed traps, so we really don't know whether we would work in that small group of patients or not. Interesting. Great. We're going to take a, a quick break and we'll be right back. The Ophthalmology Innovation Summit at ASCRS is the premier platform showcasing both public and private companies with cutting-edge surgical technologies. Applications to present are now being accepted through February 27th. Apply online at ois.net forward slash application. And we're back. Uh, obviously, the, the, the MIGS movement is huge and getting bigger, and glaucoma is a, is a wide-open opportunity for device companies. Uh, seeing a lot of companies with similar sort of shunts or stent devices to alleviate eye pressure. What do you see when you see the field of companies? Do you see uh, competitors in a race uh, in which you, know, you admittedly are behind a couple of the larger ones, the more established ones, or, or, or do you see a, a broader opportunity where, the, where there'll be a number of different players providing different devices to treat uh, glaucoma? Well, you know, Tom, in my first 30 years, there, there have always been multiple companies and multiple devices available for any type of procedure, and I doubt whether this will be uh, uh, any different from that. But I think the advantage that we have, is, several advantages, but first of all, we are going to be the first company and the only company that has a device that's been tested against trabeculectomy. And trabeculectomy is the gold standard for um, lowering intraocular pressure. So from that standpoint, we stand alone. I think the other MIGS companies, you know, right now, those other MIGS companies are almost all 
um, associated with requiring a cataract removal in order to utilize their device. There's no requirement for that for us. So I think while they fight it out for that early stage patient, um, once we're approved, the doctor will also be able to choose our device for that early stage patient. But if you're one of the um, you know, almost 3 million patients in the United States that have glaucoma and don't have a cataract, then will obviously be a choice that the doctor can make, whereas they will not be able to make that choice with a MIGS. And where I should have asked this earlier, what do you think the timeline is for uh, regulatory approval, understanding that you know this is the FDA and you can never make fast and true promises, but, but what are you looking at for a timeline for potential approval? Well, we got a few years to go. Um, um, we're gonna we're gonna need to uh, once we de- begin the uh, phase two trial, um, we'll need to uh, enroll those those uh, additional 400 plus patients. Right now, we have a two year follow up uh, required, and then you've got whatever time remains after your follow up to get that file put together and, and vetted by the panel and by the FDA. So we're we're looking at the you know at the late teens uh, at the earliest for us. And in your presentation that you actually presented, and, and anyone interested in, in hearing you speak, uh, and, and what's the, the, the PowerPoint slide that you presented was great. It's at ois.net. Uh, just search for InFocus, and you'll and you'll find it. Uh, you mentioned that you might be raising some capital this year. Does that look likely? It does. Um, I think the uh, we're we're going to initiate a C round uh, sometime this year, and the purpose of that will be to. Uh, fund the enrollment, the entire enrollment of our phase two clinical trials, as well as some very interesting technologies that we have in the R&D area that we'll be able to um, get from proof of concept all the way into uh, animal studies, uh, if not first in man, over the next uh, um, several quarters. And you've been in the ophthalmology industry for for a long time. How how do you feel about the the class of uh, and the number of investors out there that uh, that you'll be tapping? Is there a rich supply of of capitals for companies like yours, companies that are at least uh, a few, if not several, years away from a product approval? You know, it's very different now, Tom. From from my experience, the biggest change I've seen, and this is a, a very advantageous change, is the big companies um, are getting in earlier now. And, and that took uh, that, that takes a couple of things. First of all, and this is probably the hardest thing, it, the, the large companies, I think, had to come to the conclusion that their ability to invent, their ability to be imaginative and to create things that had never existed before was, was oftentimes not as good as it is in the small companies. What big companies, and I came from big companies too, so I was at Allergan, I was at AMO, competed with Bausch and & Lohm, and competed with Alcon, and what all of us were really good at was developing technologies. But when it came to researching and inventing new things, that largely comes from the small companies, and the fact that the, that the large companies have figured that out, they've now, I think, shifted their, their budgeting and their, their mentality toward um, going, you know, utilizing a certain amount of their capital for investing in opportunities like this and not just relying on their R&D department to come up with these with these novel concepts. So I think the potential for good smart capital from good smart sane people who are not just investors um, from these big companies opens up a, 
a brand new um, arena of opportunity that largely did not exist during my career. I mean, you had your companies like J&J Capital and others who were oftentimes doing stuff. But in ophthalmology, we have not seen that much of that. So with the with the uh, increased uh, amount of energy from the large companies in that arena, I think it's going to be quite good. And then there are still some some venture guys out there who are willing to um, uh, to bet on an early stage company, but certainly not the same the same number that were there previously. But they more I think they're more than made up for with with these really good smart people from these big companies. Terrific. And, and lastly, uh, going again back to the FDA, since it's such a big part of everyone's life, uh, how have you felt about your interactions with uh, with the agency? You know, I think the agency is showing um, uh, a better connection to industry than I've ever seen before, a better connection to doctors, um, and and a and a much more positive energy than at certain other times with with the agency. So I'm very encouraged. Um, you know, I think that uh, um, that the folks in the FDA are. I, I think the more time they spend with the good, smart doctors in our in our industry, and and these entrepreneurs, they find out this is not this is this is a bunch of well-meaning, hardworking, scientifically oriented people who are trying to find a better solution for patients, and and I think FDA should feel good about that. Right. And I know I said that was my last question, but this is my last question. You, you mentioned that you were, uh, you, you've spent a lot of time at, at the larger companies and you were involved with the spin out of AMO. Uh, what was, how was that experience compared to your time at, uh, in focus? What, how, how are you enjoying your time in this sort of startup opportunity? And, and have you been able to transfer lessons from the larger companies to, to what you're doing at in focus? Yeah, absolutely. I, I love both environments. Um, you know, there there's such great people in the medical device um, industry. I don't know how you could be in it and not be inspired by it. Um, and of course, the the thing that uh, big companies are really good at is they're, you know, they're very and the companies that I came came from, they're very planful. Um, they're passionate about what they're doing. They're very results oriented, and um, you know, I think though all of those skills transfer to uh, to small companies. But I think one of the weaknesses of small companies is sometimes, although they're very imaginative and creative and inventive, they're not always very planful or strategic um, about what to do and when to do it. So I think being being able to bring over those those um, leadership and management skills that 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 are that are well learned in the large companies come in very handy in in uh, a small company environment. And if you can keep, you know, if you can allow your your imaginative, creative, inventive team in the small company to still operate with that passion, but with 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 a strategy in mind, um, I think it's a great combination. Terrific. Well, I enjoyed this conversation, and thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks so much, Tom. Thanks for having us. We hope you enjoyed this discussion about glaucoma and InFocus. You can find out more about the company at ois.net. Just search for InFocus. And while you're on the site, don't forget to register for OIS at Assers this April. Rustin and Focus will be there, and that means you should be there too. We'll talk again on the OIS podcast next week, and we'll see you in San Diego. 
Join the Surgical Ophthalmology Innovators on April 16th in San Diego for OIS and ASCRS, where you will see and meet the leading companies and clinicians. The now expanded program features a showcase of emerging technologies to treat the most pressing anterior segment diseases, while also including plenary talks and discussions around business, regulatory, and finance. Hear what Jim Mazo has to say. I would tell you that OIS is now the come-to meeting in ophthalmology, and the reason is, is you're able to bring industry, practitioners, innovators in one audience discussing not what's happening today, but what's happening tomorrow. Very rarely do you have a meeting where you're discussing the future of an industry. You're usually talking about the presence, and that's why people come to this meeting, because they're hearing about things today that will impact our industry tomorrow. Visit OIS.net and sign up today.